0: Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles with you, please would you open them and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I did tell Tony that uh, he could have all the time off he wanted if he kept letting me preach Ephesians 2. What a passage. As you're turning there in your Bibles, uh, I thought I'd just briefly mention where we have come from in the last few weeks in our series in Ephesians. Uh, Tim spent the first two weeks unpacking for us this great opening passage uh, in verses 1 to 14, and he kind of lifted the bonnet, as it were, to look at the engine of our salvation. And last week, Tony took us through the first, this beautiful pastoral prayer of Paul's. Um, And, you know, really in response to the baptisms which we had, which that was just... So fantastic to witness together. And we've entitled this series in Ephesians, The Death of Division, because we believe that it picks up on these two major themes within the letter. First, you've got uh, the breaking down of this great divide between Jews and Gentiles, for them to come together as the one people of God. This is something that we're going to look at in greater detail next week, but this week, We actually look at another death of an even more fundamental division, and that's between us and God. So, with our Bibles open, let me read for us Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and then I'll pray, and then we'll dive in together. Ephesians chapter 2, from verse 1 And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you and praise you for your good and true and holy word, written to the church in Ephesus and kept for us to show us more of who Jesus is and what he has done for us so that it might shape and form us into his likeness. Please, Father, would you give us your spirit in great measure this morning that the words that we hear might be pressed into our hearts and minds by him so that we would not leave here unchanged. Please help us to see Jesus more clearly so that we might love him more dearly and live more faithfully for him. In his precious name do we ask these things. Amen. Now, we quite often face some polarizing questions in our life, don't we? You know, the kind of questions that force you to take a side. Uh, There's some less significant ones which we face on a regular basis. You know, do you want tea or coffee? There's not much at stake there. Or do I wear shorts or pants today? doesn't really matter too much. But others, you know, are a bit more serious, possibly with some social ramifications, like, you know, do you support the Eagles or the Dockers? Uh, Do you use Apple or Android? Is that still a question today? It used to be, I know. Um, You know, and I think, blessed are those who sit here this morning who actually feel no tension with these questions. I think that's quite a, a good thing. But there's another question that absolutely applies to every single person in this room this morning one that would draw a line down the middle of this room and force everyone to one side of it or to the other. The question that most fundamentally divides the whole of humanity and even more than that divides humanity from God is, have you been saved? Have you been saved? Our passage presents this dividing question to us as it considers the state of the Ephesian church before they were saved and then how they have been saved and what that actually looks like. As I said before, we're going to see the most fundamental division this morning that used to exist and perhaps maybe still does exist for some of us between us and God. So as we do that, we're going to see these three things. We're going to see humanity's inherent state We're going to see God's glorious intervention and then our humble calling. First, let us consider humanity's inherent state, and we see this in verses 1 to 3. Let me read them again for us. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now this paints quite an awful picture of the one who has not been saved, doesn't it? Dead in trespasses and sins, walking in accord with the devil and the world, carrying out the desires of our sinful flesh. By nature, children of wrath, and this can be a really difficult pill to swallow, can't it? When we think about the kind old lady who lives next door, who brings cookies over all the time, cookies over all the time, she'd never hurt a fly, but hasn't been saved. Is this really describing her? When we think about that super cute, can't even talk yet, chubby, Instagrammable little baby. Is it really by nature a child of wrath? This line which Paul is so clearly drawing in the sand, it really causes us to squirm, doesn't it? And so it should. Paul deems these verses, though, as a critical for the way which we understand the nature of our salvation and the way which we understand the world. So as much as we might want to look away from it like a bad car crash we actually need to spend some time in these verses and really to come to reality with them. So let's ask a few questions to help us do that. First, what does it mean for us to be dead in our trespasses and sins? I mean, Paul can't uh, actually have meant that to be dead is to be literally lifeless, right? With heart stopped and no breath in our lungs. People, they're not zombies that are walking around dead. No, what Paul is talking about is spiritual death. Spiritual death, which is nothing other than the alienation of the soul from God. And to be spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins is to be unable to live without sin. It's impossible for any human being who is born naturally into this world to live without sin. We're not born as blank slates, with a fresh start and just waiting for our parents or otherwise to turn us into sinners. No, we were all born physically alive, but spiritually dead. And this spiritual death always produces in us sin. Now, this doesn't mean that humanity is as bad as it possibly could be, or that those who are dead in their trespasses and sins are unable to do good things. It definitely does not mean that the image of God has been lost in those people. But it does mean that there is no part of us, our will, our reason, our bodies, our minds, our emotions, every single part of us that is not affected by sin. Our spiritual death has touched every single part of who we are. Our inherent state is the first and most fundamental reason for this division between us and god we were all born hostile to god unable to not sin and so we had no choice except to walk which is the bible's way of talking about how we live to walk according to the world to the flesh and the devil See, in our sinful rebellion, born out of the spiritual death in which we were born, and we, had to choose for, we have chosen for ourselves the worst slave masters imaginable. Paul speaks of these three powers which are at work. First is the world, which he mentions in that phrase there in verse 2, following the course of this world. The world is most certainly not painted in a good light in this passage, and in fact in many other passages in the Bible. To follow the course of the world is to do what the world does to value what the world does, to reject God just as the world does. The second power Paul speaks of is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of of disobedience. And this can be rightly understood as as the devil or Satan himself and all of his demonic powers. See, God in his wisdom, he has allowed Satan to be at work amongst humanity, deceiving them, leading them astray, and those who are, in, who are dead in their trespasses and sins are ruled by him. Now, this might be the one that we tend to push back most against. Because, I mean, we don't really see any kind of spiritual activity so much of the time here in the West, do we? But I think that this is part of Satan's cunning deceitfulness. He tricks us into thinking that he nor God nor anything spiritual is real. And he does this to the degree that Paul says that we live or have lived our lives following him. And finally, this third thing which characterizes those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, which we see there in verse 3, is that we carried out the desires of our body and mind. The sinful desires of the flesh, that part of us that craves the very opposite of what God wants. So much of the time, it looks like taking things that are good, like power or sex or relationships or money, taking these good gifts from God at the wrong time and in the wrong way, making idols for ourselves out of these things to satisfy those desires of the body and the mind in direct opposition to God, in spite of him, turning our backs from him and shaking our fists at him and spitting on his rightful rule and authority over our lives. This is the horror of sin, the abhorrent rebellion and rejection of the one who has given us our very life and breath. But before we go pointing the finger at others, we would do well to recognize that Paul goes to great lengths to show us that this is what we all were we were all by nature children of wrath just like the rest of mankind we were all guilty we were all lost we all deserved eternal death we were all deserving of god's wrath his righteous anger And this completely flies in the face of those who consider themselves to be a good person, doesn't it? That their choices aren't hurting anyone, that they have done enough good things in their life to be all right in the next, whatever that is. That they aren't as bad as that person that's over there. That they think maybe being baptised once makes them saved. I actually once knew a man who wouldn't shy away from this, but he said, "I, I don't believe that there's any God. But I am Catholic, just in case. By nature, our natural condition, at the very core of us, we are born as children of wrath. It's really a sobering reality, isn't it? We should feel the weight of this. And I can imagine that it's one that we might be struggling to accept. Uh, My youngest daughter, Zara, she's just the cutest little two-year-old that you'll ever meet. Um, Yeah, I love her. Uh, And she's just picked up the phrase, it's not fair. (laughs) Now, when she says it, she's just so cute that I would give her the whole world if I could. But friends, may we never say of God's wrath towards us as sinners, it's not fair. It's a dangerous thing to ask from God for what is fair. See, what would be fair is for God to wipe us all from existence in an instant. To start again with a new group of people who could live in obedience to him. To live in a manner that bring him the highest glory. It's not fair. Even as children of wrath, Walking in sin and trespasses, living with the sinful masters of the world, the devil and the flesh, God still abundantly pours out the good blessings in his creation on we who have spat in his face to live our own lives. We don't want what is fair, friends. We actually want what we don't deserve. And praise God that he has given us what we don't deserve. Because in verses 4 through 7 do we see God's glorious intervention. And here comes the two greatest words in which the whole gospel is bound up in. But God. Even though we were deserving of eternal death, everlasting punishment, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that then in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Wow. Talk about not fair. This is not what we deserve at all, is it? Instead of God pouring out his wrath on us, God instead poured out his mercy, his great love, his grace upon us as undeserving sinners. By sending his son in the likeness of human flesh and pouring out his wrath on him instead of us, God is able to freely lavish His mercy and love and grace upon us. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God gave us what we do not deserve in his son, Jesus. And it's particularly in verse 5 here that Paul tells us exactly what it is that God has given us through our salvation in Christ. You can see there that God, he made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, we were spiritually dead, but now we've been made spiritually alive in Christ. We were lowly sinners, but now we have been raised up with Christ. We were walking in active rebellion against God, but now we have been seated in the heavenly places with Christ. How incredible is this? What grace, what mercy, what great love with which God has loved us. But I think this ought to raise a couple of questions for us, isn't it? First of all, how can this possibly be? How is it that God has done these things for us? Well, it is through us being spiritually united to Christ. Now, this is a huge concept. uh, And there's something that's so mysterious about it, right? We can't fully wrap our heads around it. But nonetheless, it's one that is so important to Paul in his writings. Uh, Did you notice in these verses, um, not just verse 5, but the rest of them as well, how many times it mentions the phrase, "...with Christ," or "...with him," or "...in Christ Jesus." Uh, it appears all throughout Paul's writings, and it is especially important in this letter in Ephesians. And these phrases, they are shorthand ways of, that Paul is talking about the fact that those who have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, that they have in fact been spiritually united to him. Uh, the clearest image of this that we get in the New Testament is the example of marriage. Uh, man and woman... In marriage, they're united in the flesh, the two becoming one. Now, this doesn't stop them from being their own person, does it? It doesn't collapse two people into one person. There's, like I said, there's something that's so mysterious about this union, but they can be considered as one person, can't they? And Paul, later on in Ephesians, will say that this mystery of marriage actually refers to Christ and his church. Like a man and a woman united in marriage, we too have been united to Jesus, individually and corporately. Uh, just as Stacy uh, likes to remind me, uh, what's yours is mine, right? In a marriage, everything that belongs to one belongs to the other. And in our union with Jesus, everything that is his has now become ours. And so everything that God has done for Jesus, namely making him alive, raising him up from the grave, seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places, all of that can now be counted as having been done for us as well. In our union with Jesus, we are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins, but we have been made alive together with him. We have been raised together with him. We have been seated in the heavenly places together with him. Talk about this death of division, right? Because we are in Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Because we are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. Because we are in Christ, we are children of God. Because we are in Christ, we will rule and reign with him over all things. Because we are in Christ, we will indeed be given a glorious body, just like his on that final day. Imperishable, incorruptible, immortal. What a glorious salvation we have received from our God, church. God's glorious intervention means that this is so much better than just simply going to heaven when you die. This is being intimately joined to the risen and reigning Lord Jesus who has given, been given everything from the Father. Whatever belongs to him is counted as belonging to us. This is absolutely incredible, isn't it? This blows any other understanding of what religion is completely out of the water. But do you know what? It doesn't even stop there. This is what uh, God has done for us, right? But why has he done it? Look with me at verse 7. God has done this so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So Paul is telling us that not only has God made us alive, raised us and seated us with Jesus, but that in the coming ages, that is for all of eternity, God will never ever stop showing us the immeasurable riches of his grace. Which means that the reason that God has shown us grace in our salvation is so that he can keep on showing the immeasurable riches of it on and on and on and on into eternity. Wow. I wonder, have you ever sat down at the beach to count the waves rolling in? They're persistent, aren't they? It can actually even be overwhelming Uh, Perhaps as a kid, maybe you remember uh, the experience of being dumped by a wave. And the wave rolls you over and pulls you under. And by the time you struggle to get up and catch your breath, the next wave has crashed down in on you again. And down you go again with it. I get the sense that this is what God's grace is like towards us. Except, you know, it doesn't drown us. (laughs) Like wave after wave, His grace comes towards us again and again into all of eternity. Like a beach, His waves never stop. They never take a break, they never move away. The riches of God's grace towards those who are in Christ Jesus are immeasurable. And we will spend all of eternity never being able to exhaust them. The good news is, friends, that this is freely available to all who believe and trust in Jesus. This division between God and those who are spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins has been torn down through Jesus' death on the cross. And all you need to do today is to trust that Jesus has paid for your sins and that because of his work, God has made you alive. He has raised you up. He has seated you in the heavenly places with Christ. This is what Jesus had for his people. So come. Come and believe the good news of the gospel. There would, I imagine, be hundreds of millions of people all across the world gathering in churches, just like ours this morning. And for the most part, uh, they're made up of people who trust in Jesus and have been made alive with him and raised with him and seated in the heavenly places. The church is a truly beautiful thing. But it certainly doesn't always feel this way, does it? Our lives, for the most part, can feel very ordinary, still very sinful, not all that spiritual. So how is it then that Paul can speak of these glorious realities like they're already here and now, when they can still seem so very faint and distant? Well, because for the Christian, we live in this period of time known as the now but not yet. Spiritually, yes, now all of things are absolutely true. Our position in Christ is rock solid and it can never change. But we're still waiting for the fullness of these realities to come to pass, aren't we? So often we can feel this, this tension between these two things. Our heart it rejoices in God, we love to do His work, we delight in His word. And yet so often, we fall to the temptations of our fleshly desires. We're still deceived by the enemy, and we still live too much like we belong to this world. But Paul, he wants us to see the deeper, the truer reality of the Christian in these verses. May we feel the nowness of our salvation, how precious it is, how glorious it is, how wonderful these things which God has done for us. And may we wait in hopeful expectation for this fullness of our salvation to come. Which leads us into our final point in verses 8 through 10, our humble calling. What does it look like for us to wait in hopeful expectation for the fullness of our union with Christ? Well, firstly, Paul never wants us to forget how and why we are saved. I think we've seen that in verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. By grace you have been saved through faith, And not by works. Paul, he couldn't have stressed this point any further in this passage, I don't think. We saw this already in verse 5, didn't we? Where he breaks his train of thought to interject and say, It's by grace that you've been saved. And then he comes back around to this point again in verse 8 to make sure that we never forget it. Now, please, let me speak frankly with you for a moment, church, in the same tone, I think, with the Apostle Paul you are not the efficient cause of your salvation. You are not saved because you decided to be. You are not saved because you come to church. You are not saved because you were baptized. You are not saved because you give money to the poor. You are not saved because you know your Bible well and perhaps this is more pertinent to those who've been walking with Jesus for a long time now, you do not stay saved because of the good works which you do. It is by grace you have been saved. This is God's gift, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation, it is a gift given to us from God, and all we can do with it is to receive it with the empty hands of faith. This passage, it even seems to suggest quite strongly, along with other parts of Scripture, that even faith is part of God's wonderful gift in salvation. So let there be no boasting among us, church. May we not have any ounce of pride because we think we came to God, that we figured it out, or that we were good enough, or that we were born into it. This is God's gift, and may we not take any credit for this amazing thing which he has done. Uh, You might have heard of the illustration uh, of the gospel that it's like a flotation device, which you know, you throw out to someone who's drowning at sea. Uh, And all that person needs to do, right, is to grab hold of it uh, and they'll be saved, right? They'll be pulled in. I think that that analogy could probably do with some serious tweaking in light of this passage. The even greater news of the gospel is that every single one of us, we weren't just drowning and that we had it in our means to, you know, grab the floaty ring and be pulled back in. No, we were already dead on the bottom of that ocean floor. There's no grabbing onto the floaty ring when you're lifeless. We needed a supernatural miracle to happen. That we would be raised to life, that we would be raised above the surface of the water, and then we would be seated on that boat in royal robes next to the one who died for us to make it happen. This is the nature of our humble calling. Such worth, such status, such royalty placed upon us, and yet it has absolutely nothing to do with us. There was nothing lovely, there was nothing worthy, nothing special about us, except that by the grace of God, he had chosen us for himself before the foundations of the world. He chose us so that we would be lovely, so that we would be worthy, and that we would be his special and treasured possession. Our salvation is a precious gift, friends. May we treat it as such. Now, while we haven't been saved by works... Nor do we uh, stay saved by works. Verse 10 shows us that God has indeed saved us for good works, right? In verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What does it look like to wait in hopeful expectation for the fullness of our salvation? Well, as we've already seen, we're to humbly remember the precious nature of our salvation and how wonderful and glorious it is as a gift. And we are also to walk in the works which God has prepared for us. We must walk in obedience to him in light of all that he has done for us. But can you still see how God's grace is poured out from beginning to end? He has saved us now, and he will bring it to its fullness when we see him face to face. And in the meantime, while we wait, while we are in this now but not yet period, the works which we are to do, he's prepared beforehand. Even the works themselves which we must walk in are a part of God's grace towards us. Now, this doesn't, it doesn't make us robots, right? I'm not just carrying out whatever... Uh, God makes us do, like puppets on a string. We must exercise our renewed hearts and minds in obedience to God. But it's only by grace that we can do that. And so do you know what this means? This means that God loves to answer your prayers for help. He will answer your prayers for help to do the things that he has for you to do. Uh, Every Friday night, my youth team and I, we sit down about an hour before the teens arrive, and most weeks we look pretty worse for wear. Uh, All of us, we're studying full-time. All of us are working part-time jobs. All of us are serving in the church in other ways. All of us have families which demand one thing or another from us. And so often we come to youth on a Friday night feeling really tired. And so every time we meet, we sit together and we plead with God that he would strengthen us so that we can serve him faithfully that night and so that we can love our teens well. And do you know what? Every single time, God answers our prayers. Every single time we look back on the night and we go, yep, God helped us again. There are good works that he has prepared for us, church. And by no means is it limited to serving in church, though we should certainly do that. Our world is filled with those who are still spiritually dead. And God has called us to love them so that we might reach them with the good news of Jesus, so that more and more would be made alive in him. So let me ask of us all, are we walking in the good works which God has prepared for us? Are we seeking Him? Are we praying for opportunities to do these good works? Is there something that maybe you know that you should be doing, but there's certain fears that are stopping you? Parents of young kids, I know, believe how hard it is. But there are still good works for you to do, even in this season, which God has made for you to walk in. Now, many of them, they are loving your kids and raising them in the gospel. But perhaps, maybe there's something else that he might have you do as well. Those with older kids, what are you now seeking to do with this extra time on your hands? Do you see it as a time to start living for yourself again? Or would you be willing to seek the good works which God has for you to do? Because friends, we can boldly serve our God because by his grace, he will give us everything that we need to do them so that he gets all the glory as he rightfully should. As we've seen this morning, we serve an incredibly good God, a kind and a merciful God, loving and compassionate and generous towards his people. Our humble calling means that we now walk in the light of his glory and grace. But do you remember where we started? Verse 2 had us as spiritually dead people. Walking in our trespasses and sins. And where do we finish here in verse 10? We have been created in Christ Jesus for the good works which God has prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them instead. Uh, This week, I read a fantastic article written by a local author uh, who describes themselves as a nobody from nowhere who has been made a somebody headed for heaven by the grace of Jesus. Uh, And her article uh, was written as a letter to her sin and from her soul. And I I just want to read you a small portion of it, which I think illustrates our humble calling uh, really beautifully. Dear sin, I thought of not engaging you at all, but decided it would be more profitable to respond, not for your sake, but for mine. It'll be refreshing for me to review how wrong you are on every single point. It is true that there was a time when our desires were one and the same. At every opportunity to serve you, I did so with relish. If we disagreed, it was a difference of opinion among friends, not foes. I truly believed you had my best interests at heart, even though you drove me so hard and never seemed satisfied with my labour. But all that has changed. My eyes have been opened to what you truly are, and I don't like what I see. You are death to me now, and an enemy. So though you may tell me with force what you want, know that it is you and you alone who want it. I have been changed, and I'm utterly of a different nature. This is what god has done for us church this is the humble calling for which we have been saved for what a glorious salvation indeed in chapter one paul prayed that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened that we would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation this fundamental reality this death of this division between us and god as he's described it in these 10 breathtaking verses, is a crucial means in God answering that prayer for you and me. As we grow more deeply in this reality, it will radically change our perception of life. It will shape us as a thankful people, which is the very thing that Paul prays for in in that verse as well. It will shape us as a humble people. It will shape us as a holy people. And we will be a people that indeed is for the praise of God's glorious grace. Let's pray. Thank you. Gracious Father, that you are indeed rich in mercy. Thank you for this great love with which you have loved us, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, you made us alive together with Christ. You raised us up with him, and you seated us with him in the heavenly places. You've done all of this, Lord, so that for all of eternity, on and on and on, that you might show the immeasurable riches of your grace in kindness towards us who are in Jesus. May we forever remember, Lord, that it is by grace that we have been saved, that this is your gift of salvation. And Lord, would you please help us to carry out these good works which you have prepared beforehand for us to do. Thank you for this glorious salvation. Help us, Lord, to live in light of it, as faithful children bringing you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.